The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Well, welcome. I'm, I'm so glad to be here with you guys today. Uh, for those of you who are, who are online or joining us in the overflow, we're so thankful that you get to worship with us this morning as well. My name is Jeremy. For those who might be new, I'm one of the pastors here at Heritage. And we are going to be meditating on the Psalms for the next five weeks leading up to September, in which we will launch a brief series in September as well, talking about discipleship and and thinking about what that looks like here at Heritage. But I want to ask you a question this morning as we begin this adventure on worship. What, What do you think of when you hear the word worship? What do you think of? What comes to mind as images of what worship is? Perhaps maybe you imagine a corporate setting like this where, where hands are lifted into the air and people are singing with their eyes closed. Or maybe you imagine a more personal act of worship. It's, it's just one person in an empty space in quiet reflection, in praise to God. Or, or perhaps you thought of a music genre. Maybe that's what came into your mind. Is there a tempo to that? Is there, is there a tone that indicates that some music is worship, that distinguishes it from other music that's available? Or maybe it's not the tone or the tempo, maybe it's more about the content of a particular song or groupings of songs. Something more positive, something that focuses you on the glory of God and extols His beauty. You know, one of the core values that we have here at Heritage is what we refer to as authentic worship. Matter of fact, when we read from our core values list, we make this statement regarding nurturing this goal of authentic worship in our lives as a church. The purpose of all we do is the worship of God for his glory. We desire to create a culture where people are empowered by the spirit of God and an understanding of the gospel to worship God and to see worship as something that is done in every area of life. Christians are to live as ambassadors of a different kingdom, manifesting God's character and nature as we do. You see, this is why the next five weeks of study through the book of Psalms is such a wonderful opportunity for us to explore what authentic worship really is. Because in Christian culture, our definition of worship has to broaden. It has to get bigger. As disciples, we must grow to understand that worship is more than just a particular genre of music, a tone, or musical content. You know, some of the Psalms, if you read through the Psalms, come with musical notation. And some of the songs are, are a, a fast tempo. They, the, these notations suggest 
uh, tempo and tone of the song that you're reading or, or, or singing. And some read like the contemplative person sitting beside a gentle stream, gently strumming a ukulele as they sing worship songs to God. And some of the psalms read like that. Others of the psalms read more like screamo or death metal where somebody is screaming their guts out to God, crying in agony to him. But in any case, worship is the offering of our lives back to God out of our internal and external state in the moment. This will include our inner life of thoughts and attitudes and intentions, but it will also include the outer life of how we respond to life and even to life in crisis. Our active service to God and the way that we navigate a broken world with the wisdom to choose what pleases God. All of this is under the heading of worship. You know, in preparation for our, our time in the Psalms, uh, I downloaded this great app called Streetlights. If any of you are, you know, have regular consistent times where you're commuting during the day or maybe you, you're, you exercise, this, this uh, app called Streetlights is a collection of people reading the scriptures with a sort of urban backbeat in the background. And one particular night, I, I had a nice long walk and I listened to the entirety of book one of the Psalms, Psalms 1 through 41. And I was struck by the various ways that the authors, the, the, the many different authors of these Psalms, offer their hearts to God. There's praise, that's extolling God for who He is. Thanksgiving, that's giving God thanks for what he's done. But there's also confession, complaint. There's pleading. There's anger at enemies. And there's a deep longing to see the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. You see, the Psalms cover every human emotion, from extravagant joy to gentle contemplation to intense longing to frustration and even frustration with God himself, with anger towards enemies to a deep, deep cry for justice in the world. In other words, worship is authentically offering to God the cries of our heart in every circumstance of life. Even if what comes from our hearts is somewhat ugly. So, let's talk about the structure of Psalms a little bit because I want to give us a little bit of ground rules, some framework for us to think about how do we interpret the Psalms because this is a genre that is different than the rest of the Bible. So uh, Psalms is, uh, it falls in a section of the Old Testament that is often called the poetic books. This section of the Bible includes Job, 
Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon. Now, roughly a third of the Old Testament has been categorized as poetry. So one-third of the entire Old Testament is poetry. And um, these, they, they, they take some sort of poetic form. Um, and these books, the Psalms, are a collection of those poems. The books referred to as the poetic books uh, are referred to that because they employ uh, literary devices for the purpose of gaining some response or gaining some meditative posture of the listener. The purpose of these literary devices is often to provoke a feeling response in the listener or to, to illustrate a, a, truth for, uh, a truth or to help people contemplate in a deeper way, to draw the reader or the listener into deeper contemplation of the truth. So it's not mere entertainment. It's not just an art form for the sake of art. It has a purpose. They serve to connect the truth in our heads to the reactionary place of our hearts. Now, there's a great quote. It's one of my favorites. It's one that I really enjoy. It says that the sciences give us the truth, but the arts help us to feel the truth. See, and that's what the Psalms do. They, they take the truth of God and they say it in such a way with word pictures and phrasing in such a way that, we, that it hits our hearts and we have to go, man, I've never thought about it like that before. What's going on here? Let me, let me chew on this some more. It is meditation literature. Now there's five books contained in the one book that is called Psalms in our Bibles. There are five distinct books contained or volumes within the book of Psalms. Uh, there's a Hebrew midrash or commentary on the Old Testament that suggests that each of these five books correspond with one of the books of the Pentateuch. And each of those five volumes in the book of Psalms contain many individual psalms. So the book of Psalms is actually a collection of songs, of wisdom, poetry, and prayers. And, and, and there were many authors throughout the book of Psalms. David uh, is given attribution for 75 total psalms. So that doesn't mean that he wrote them all. It could be uh, by David, to David, or for David. But a psalm of David is, is, falls under that classification. Then there's a guy named Asaph that wrote 12 psalms. The sons of Korah wrote 11 psalms. There's a, there's a guy named He-Man. That's a great name. If you grew up in the 80s, that is a fantastic name. For those of you who are having babies right now, I think that's the perfect name for a young boy. Uh, so keep that in your back pocket. But, but He-Man has the most depressing song in the entire book of Psalms, Psalm 88. Solomon is given two psalms in the book of Psalms, and we know from other places in Scripture that he wrote over a thousand psalms. But two of them landed here in the book of Psalms. Moses wrote one psalm. Ethan the Ezraite wrote one psalm. And then there are 48 remaining anonymous psalms. We don't know who the author is. We just get the song that is in there or the poem that is in there. 
Now, all of these songs, this collection of, uh, of psalms, were compiled by an, ed- an editor during the time of Ezra. So this is post-exile, after uh, the return from captivity. And this was done for a specific reason. We'll get into that after a bit here. But here's the basic layout of the five-volume book of the Psalms. Book 1 is Psalm 1 to 41 and corresponds with Genesis. Book 2, Psalm 42 to 72, corresponds with Exodus. Book 3, 73 to 89, corresponds to Leviticus. Book 4 is Psalm 90 to 106, the book of Numbers. And, Psalm, and book 5 is Psalm 107 to 150 and corresponds to Deuteronomy. So for those of you who are trying to figure out, like, how is the book of Psalms laid out? Is there like a logic to it? Well, there's these five volumes and they each correspond to one of the Pentateuch according to uh, a, a Hebrew midrash or commentary on the Old Testament. Now, the Psalms themselves had, have had various categories assigned to their content or ways of describing sort of the content of those Psalms. Uh, though the entire book of Psalms, uh, book of Psalms, does not organize itself thematically, uh, people have still tried to categorize it. And so not everyone has the same list of t- Psalm types in the Bible. But here are the basic categories. And I'm going to go through this quickly. If you got a phone, just reach up. Don't be afraid. Take a picture of that slide if that's information that you want. And all of this is researchable online, of course. So types of psalms. There are enthronement psalms, a psalm that celebrates God's kingship. Historical psalms. This is a psalm that that recounts God's actions throughout history. There are two types of lament songs. There's corporate lament. That's a cry to God from the community. And then there's individual lament. That's a, a cry to God from an individual. Then you have pilgrimage. This is a psalm that was intended to be sung in pilgrimage to Jerusalem to go and worship at the temple. You have royal psalms, a psalm on behalf of the king. You have songs of Zion, a psalm that focuses on Yahweh's presence in Jerusalem. Temple entry psalms. These were psalms that were intended to be sung as the worshiper entered the temple. Confidence or trust psalms. These are psalms that express trust in God's loyal love. Then you have thanksgiving psalms, psalms intended to express gratitude to God. Wisdom psalms, psalms that show a similarity to wisdom literature, they're kind of proverbial. And then you have praise psalms. These are psalms intended to praise God for his attributes. So they're not focused on what God does. They're focused on the nature and character of God, of who he is. So that's what makes them different from Thanksgiving. Now, when it comes to studying the book of Psalms, there are basically three different approaches to how to do that. I'm going to give you some technical language here, but it's helpful to have this sort of in your background when you're trying to think about, like, how do I approach studying or thinking about or even reading for, for leisure the Psalms. So the first one is called the form-critical approach. 
That is, you try and classify the Psalms according to their differing forms. And so this was uh, an idea put forward by a guy named Edvard Gunkel. You, you should remember that name, it's super important. I'm kidding, you, you could forget it. Uh, he lived in the 18, uh, from 1862 to 1932. And basically, he tried to take the subject matter of the Psalms and, you know, divide them into categories. But the book itself is not organized that way. So he was trying to find themes from the book of Psalms or forms from the book of Psalms, patterns that were repeatable in some of the poetry. Now, of course, not every Psalm follows a form. And so that, of course, makes it problematic. The second one is called cult functional. And that is this idea that you find when these psalms were used in temple worship historically and apply the reading of these psalms to parallel moments in the church. So they, they try to figure out, like, what's the occasion that this psalm was written? And if it was used in temple worship in some way, then maybe there's some way that we can bring that forward into our, our liturgy or our worship as God's people in the present day and age. So is there like a New Year's? psalm or is there like a a a psalm that celebrates uh you know national liberation from slavery what might those psalms be now of course this is also problematic approach because some of the psalms speak of both battlefields and worship in the temple at the same time so it's really hard to classify it by events and there's a great many of the psalms that we have no idea historically how they were used in corporate worship so the third approach, and the approach that I believe that Jesus wants you to use, is the canonical approach. The canonical approach takes a look at the entire book of Psalms, as it stands as a whole, and looks for the continuity of a message from the entire list, or the entire canon of the Psalms. This was put forward by a guy named Gerald Wilson in 1985. And he concluded that the book of Psalms was the result of purposeful editorial activity that sought to have a meaningful arrangement that encompassed the whole book of Psalms. So here's the idea. Ezra or or a group of people during the time of Ezra, they, they have a bunch of poetry in front of them, maybe thousands of copies of poems. And what they did is they selected from those poems from those songs, and they began to assemble them into books or volumes for a specific purpose. Now, from Wilson's work, it's helpful to see the way that the Psalms are laid out. There's a, there's a book called The Design of the Psalter, a macro-structural analysis. analysis. It's by uh, a guy named Peter C.W. Ho. Now, listen to this quote from this book. He says, The logic of the Psalter is the reception of the Davidic covenant wrapped in the cloth of Hebrew poetry. The primary leitmotifs of the Psalter found in the prologue is an interweaved landscape of kingship, Zion, and Torah piousness in book one. It traces the establishment of the Davidic covenant and Zion temple. And this is followed by a sustained focus on the historical fall of David and his kingship and Zion in books two to three. 
And the turning point in the meta-narrative occurs in book four with the foregrounding of Yahweh's kingship and the appearance of the blameless suffering Davidic ruler. Book five of the Psalter begins then with a call for Yahweh to lead his people to an inhabited city. It highlights the establishment of an ideal Zion that Yahweh builds and the triumphs of a Davidic king and there the people's arrival at that place. The Davidic promises prevail because of Yahweh's covenant faithfulness. And that's a, it's a mouthful. Okay, I, I know that. But I want you to see this because this is, this is helpful. It's important for us. The outline of the entire set of Psalms as organized by the first editors would then look something like this. First of all, you would have an introduction to the Psalms in Psalm 1 and 2 in the first book of Psalms. So there's sort of an introduction that sets the stage for the Psalms. Now Psalm 1, which we'll look at today, is a wisdom psalm talking about you know, uh, what it means to, to be happy, to be blessed, and, uh, and, and how you live that life. The, the second psalm is a song about the authority of the, the Messiah and how we must come under his kingdom. Okay, then that sets the stage for the unfolding of the rest of the psalm. So book one then focuses on the Davidic covenant of God with his people. Uh, book two then focuses on the covenant kingdom of Israel, their king, and then the fall of that king and that kingdom in Israel. Book four says Yahweh reigns as king and longs for Yahweh to establish his kingdom. And then book five said, pleads with God and says, Yahweh, bring your people home. Bring them to Zion. Bring them to the place, the kingdom that you establish forever and ever. And then the last set of Psalms, verses, uh, Psalm 146 to 150, conclude with doxology or just worship response to the content of the book of Psalms. So here, here's the big idea. The book of Psalms, the book of Psalms, is about the Davidic line, Zion, the temple, and the desire for God to establish his kingdom. And this is why there's so much tension in the book of Psalms. Because it is the cries of people longing for God to put things right. It is the cries of people who, who are living in the already not yet. They know that God's promise this kingdom is coming, but it has not yet fully come. And they are crying out in anguish and saying, God, do what you want to do here on the earth. And these psalms then are born out of that cry, out of that desire. So God's people call out to God. How long, O oh Lord? Now, can you see why Ezra, during the time of the return from captivity, would order the Psalms in this way? Because they were coming back to a homeland that was destroyed. Coming back to a place in Israel that was, that, that was just turned into mincemeat. And they're trying to rebuild. And what they are crying out as a people. This songbook is organized for the people of God in a time of destruction saying, God, establish your kingdom. Do here on earth what you're already doing in heaven. 
So there have been seasons and movements in church history where the people of God read a psalm every time the church is gathered or as a part of the liturgy. Many throughout the kingdom of God have found joy in reading the psalms daily as a part of their devotional life. They choose to read a psalm in the morning and then something like a gospel passage or a proverb in the evening. And these psalms have inspired music for thousands of years. And there's no denying that the psalms have been an integral part of the life of the church and of Judaism primarily because we can relate to the Psalter in almost every situation in life. The art of the authors of these psalms is to use words that give God's people the language and the emotional intelligence to offer to God what is in their hearts. And it's our prayer as a leadership team that in these coming five weeks, our time of meditating on just a few examples of these psalms will increase our capacity to think of worship more broadly. You see, we hold in our hands the songbook of Jesus. Think about that. These are the songs that Jesus sang. These, did you know, by the way, Jesus quoted the Psalms more than any other Old Testament book of the Bible. What's that tell you about his life? What's that tell you about his, his contemplative time, where he spent his time meditating? So, our hope is that we also, through meditating upon these Psalms, through understanding that we are just like the people of Israel, longing for God to establish his kingdom, We're like them, living in the already, not yet, that we will broaden our understanding of what it looks like to offer our hearts to God. Okay, so now after a 20-minute introduction, we will move to the text. So let's turn to Psalm 1 to see how the editor of the Psalms introduces the book to us. He has an opportunity to to select one poem to, to introduce to us the entire five-volume set of all the psalms, right? Now, what psalm does he choose? He chooses what we call Psalm 1. Psalm 1 is a wisdom psalm, which seeks to get the reader to think about how to live a wise life in accordance with the way of God. And it contrasts the way of the righteous and the way of the wicked. Now, what is interesting about this is that the opening psalm for the Bible's hymnal on worship or hymnal of worship starts not with, you know, great songs about the excellencies of God, but starts with the posture of the worshiper. The nature of worship is in focus here. Essentially, it says you can live God's way or you can live the hard way. Let's read it together. Psalm 1, beginning verse 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, 
He meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its seasons, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Our outline in looking at the structure of this psalm goes like this. Psalm 1, verse 1, the resistance of the righteous. The resistance of the righteous. Verse 2, the diet of the righteous. The diet of the righteous. Verse 3, the growth of of the righteous, the growth of the righteous, and verses 4 through 6, the end result of the wicked, the end result of the wicked in verses 4 through 6. So looking at that first section, verse 1, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. We see here the resistance of the righteous. We should start, though, I think, by defining the word blessed. The Hebrew word for blessed is esher. And it means something like, oh, how happy. Okay? Oh, how happy. Now, in Greek manuscripts of the Old Testament, this word is translated makarios. And it makes its first appearance in the Greek, in the New Testament, in Matthew chapter 5, where Jesus opens up the Sermon on the Mount, and he says, Makarios, blessed are the poor in spirit. Same idea there. Oh, how happy are the poor in spirit. Oh, how happy is the one who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. The, ser- the author here is, is making a statement about the state of the person being described. Oh, how happy are they? Why? Because they make choices about, wh- about what they will to do and what they will not to do. And he gives us three categories that at first glance may seem very familiar, like a redundancy, but they're not. They do not walk in the counsel of the wicked. They do not stand in the way of sinners. They do not sit in the seat of scoffers or or mockers. So the first thing that we clearly see here is that there is a separation or a resistance of the happy person, of the righteous person, the person who is happy is actively resisting these things in their life. Notice first that they are careful who they get counsel from. They're careful not to get counsel from those who have no fear of God, those who are living in the way of of wickedness. You'll often hear me say, be careful who you let give you counsel. Not everyone is qualified to give you counsel. And I, I, I've been around uh, the church for a while, 
and through the wreckage of life and family again and again and again. And let me tell you, poor counselors come out of the woodwork at the worst times. Be careful what people you listen to. Not everybody is qualified to give you advice. Some people in your life will tell you what they think is right, but their advice is completely opposed to God. One of the places I've seen this most often is at weddings. People always want to give wedding advice, marriage advice. It's the worst marriage advice that could ever happen. They always say stupid things like, listen, listen, if you want to be happy, here's what you do. Get yourself a little secret bank account that the wife doesn't know about, right? And then you can spend it on whatever you want, you know, just chuck money away. Stupid. That's the dumbest advice I've ever heard, right? People are fools. Not everybody is qualified to give you counsel. The issue is not so much that the righteous refuse to talk about life with the wicked. Rather, it's the idea that they don't do what what the wicked tell them. They get their counsel from a trusted resource, from somewhere else. The second thing that they do is that they do not stand in the way of sinners. Now, this verse is not saying that the righteous will not prevent sinners from sinning by standing in their way. Rather, the author of the psalm is telling us that the path that the sinner is on, the way of the sinner, is a place that the righteous refuse to stand. The happy person says, I'm not going that way. I won't be a part of that thing. I'm not going with you in that. I won't be a participant. And then thirdly, the righteous do not sit in the seat of the scoffer or mocker. This is the person who, the mocker is the person who is so hardened by practice sin that they mock or scoff at God and his ways. There's a a sort of brazenness to their sin. But the righteous refuse to make that the company that they keep. They know that God is not mocked. Now note the digression in these words. They go from walking to standing to sitting. It's like this slow hardening of the heart that can occur based on where you get counsel or who you walk with or who you eventually end up sitting with and keeping company with, the people who mock God. Spurgeon has this great quote Pastor Paul reminded me of this last week. Let me read it to you. When men are living in sin, they go from bad to worse. At first, they merely walk in the counsel of the careless and ungodly who forget God. The evil is rather practical than habitual. But after that, they become habituated to evil. And they stand in the way of open sinners who willfully violate God's commandments. And if left alone, they go one step further and become themselves pestilent teachers and tempters of others. And thus they sit in the seat of the scornful. They have taken their degree in vice. And as true doctors of damnation, they are installed and are looked upon by others as masters in Belial. But the blessed man, the man to whom all the blessings of God belong, 
can hold no communion with such characters as these. He keeps himself pure from these lepers. He puts away evil things from him as garments spotted by the flesh. He comes out from among the wicked and goes without the camp, bearing the reproach of Christ. Oh, for grace to be thus separate from sinners. Now, you may be asking, as I was asking when I read this quote, but aren't, aren't we supposed to befriend sinners? Like Jesus? The answer is yes. But that doesn't mean that you think or act like the wicked. The Christian is to be a thermostat and not a thermometer. A Christian on mission for God, the happy, the blessed man from Psalm 1, sets the temperature or the temperament of the relationship rather than adjusting to it. The way we engage a world in rebellion against God is not by joining their rebellion. That's the idea. There is a holy resistance to becoming a part of what is leading others to hell, ultimately. In verse 1, we see clearly that the righteous are not mere passive people who just go with the flow. There's an active resistance to being a part of what displeases God. And pleasing God makes the righteous person oh so happy. Blessed. In verse 2, this gets more clear. Their, their lives are not simply full of fighting wickedness. They also feast on the words of God. So let's look at the diet of the righteous in verse 2. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. What makes the man in this psalm blessed or happy? Look at what verse 2 tells us. There's an inborn delight in God's word. They take pleasure in hearing and doing what God has said. Now it's one thing to say that the righteous follow God like soldiers into battle or like slaves to a master. It is completely another thing to say that this person delights in the law of the Lord. You see, a part of their joy is the feast they eat from at God's table. It brings them joy to hear God's words. And their diet then affects their appetites. Now we should also take note of the object of their delight. It is the law of the Lord. Now, oftentimes in Christian circles, we're sloppy about the way that we talk about the law of God. Often it's talked about as though the law is something bad. But the law is good. The law in the Old Testament times was the terms of a relationship between God and his people. It was the terms of a covenant relationship with God. It wasn't a bad thing. It was practical instruction that was to be lived out. 
So the idea it was that the Israelites were to live out the law of God the way, uh, and the way that God could be seen in one another and by the nations that surrounded them was the way that they lived differently from the nations around them. It, dis- it made a distinction between them. It taught them how to live under the rule or reign of God. The law had a purpose. It would one day be fulfilled. It would ultimately find its final fulfillment in showing Israel who their future and eternal king would be. It was like a schoolmaster preparing them to live under the rule of King Jesus. And the psalmist here is saying that the happy person, the blessed person, delights in knowing how to have a relationship with God. The law is not a burden. It's a delight. It's not a means of becoming righteous. That happens by faith. Rather, because he is brought into relationship with God, he joyfully embraces God's instruction. And as, a, as a matter of fact, he does more than just read or hear the law of God. What's the next line say? It says that he meditates on it day and night. This idea of meditating on God's word is worth our meditation. The Hebrew word is Hagah. Or if you're from the south, Haggah, right? And can be used in a variety of ways that can express groaning or mourning, imagining, plotting. But the best way to understand this is the word muttering. It's like whatever processing is happening on the inside is being muttered from the lips. You're just kind of always, you know, just thinking about the law of God, just calculating, just running it over, milling it over in your mind, constantly chewing on it like a cow chewing the cud. The pastor I grew up around was, was fond of talking about how cows uh, when they eat grass, you know, of course, they have like four stomachs and they, they eat grass and they can't digest it all on the first pass. So what they do is they chew it up, they swallow it down into one of their stomachs. And then, you know, half hour later or so, they're like, hmm, I think I'll go at it again. And they just sort of burp it back up into their mouth. And then they just start chewing on it again. And they, by doing that, they, they break down all the fibers in the grasses and they soak out all the nutrients And that is kind of the idea. That's the kind of what is happening here. The the happy man continues to mull it over on the inside again and again and again and again. He's kind of always just chewing on, thinking about, contemplating the word of God to get everything out of it. Kathy shared something from John Piper that hits the nail on the head regarding this in our sermon prep time this last week. Let me read you this quote. The only hope against the pleasures of the world are the pleasures of the word. And just like the pleasures of the world are awakened by looking at them long enough, so the pleasures of the word are awakened in the regenerate soul by looking at them long enough, day and night. Isn't that a great quote? Let me illustrate how good it is for us to meditate 
on the Word of God. Now, talking with a friend a couple of weeks ago, we had a great discussion about the anatomy of trust and how it works in the human heart. Now, most people think that trust functions in the human heart kind of like a a bar graph, and it fluctuates with every new experience in life. So if I have a good experience with someone, like I I wake up in the morning and my wife brings me coffee in bed, I'm like, oh man, that's a a big experience. High trust, right? You bring me coffee in bed, you are an amazing person who obviously wants good for me. Amen. Amen. But then maybe I have a a bad experience, and that can be in the next few moments or during the day later on. Maybe as I'm walking out, she yells something at me, and then she kicks the cat down the stairs and, you know, says a couple of bad words. Well, oh, man. Okay, now, do, do I trust this person? I think, you know, trust just sort of falls. But that is not how it actually works in the human heart. We don't build and destroy trust like that. The, pr- the problem with this understanding is that it leaves you subject to every momentary encounter to, to reassess the whole of your trusting of the other person based on one experience. So it doesn't function like a bar graph, rather it functions more like a cluster graph. And this is something I got from the Gottman Institute. It, this is super helpful to me. Trust actually works more like a cluster graph. This is, that is, in our experience with others, there are micro moments that put good and trusting data on the chart of greater trust or lesser trust. And so we're putting these data points above that diagonal line there. And, and in a high trust environment, there's lots of data up above on the, on the high trust section. And in a low tra- trust environment, there's lots of data on the low trust side of things. Now, this is actually really good news for how our hearts work. It's wonderful uh, for us to know this because when we're trying to understand whether or not we trust somebody, we're not looking in, in, in to the last moment. We're taking the entirety of small experiences we have with other people and we're, we're sort of putting them on, on that cluster graph. We're saying the vast majority of my experience with this person says that they are good, that they are loving, that they intend good for me that they have an honor and reverence for me. And then when all of a sudden your wife kicks the cat down the stairs or your husband and they say some bad words, you go, okay. Based on everything I know, I have all this data up on, on this upper half of the graph that tells me I can trust them. And so I'm going to chalk this up to them having a bad day. Maybe I should have brought them coffee in bed. Maybe that was the problem. Uh, I'm going to chalk this up to them being a sinner. We can find all kinds of reasons to say this person is still trustworthy because I have lots of good data on the map above. Now, here's where it gets interesting, though. When your experience of others has equal amounts of data on the, above the line in a high-trust environment and below the line in a low-trust environment, what happens is you get confused. And you start to feel a little bit crazy, like, I, I don't know what to believe about you. Are you good? Do you intend good? I have good experiences with you. But then I have these other ones that are really hurtful as well, so I'm not sure where we stand. I don't know how to trust you in that place. See how confusing it gets. 
gets confusing when you have equal amounts of trust above and below the line. Our hearts don't know what to land on. We're confused as to what to believe about the other person and their intentions towards us. Okay, so that's in human relationships. This has a point. What about in our relationship with God? Can you see why meditating on the Word of God day and night is such an encouragement to our faith? When we sit daily with God, we are putting good data on the map. We're putting it in the high trust category. And trust me, you are going to need it someday. There will come seasons when you need to draw on what you know and what you have encountered and what you experience of God. To know that you still trust Him when the experiences that we share in life are not easy. You see, when we come day and night before the Lord with our hearts and we encounter Him in relationship, we meditate on His Word and we think about it all the time, we're encountering the character of God through our own personal experience, but not only that, but also through the experiences that the saints have had with Him throughout the ages. And when hard times come, and they always do, we're able to see the goodness of God and still trust Him. You see, the disciplines that we employ to do this are any one of a number. They're varied. It can be deep times of personal or corporate study. It can be reading the Bible, memorizing scriptures, sometimes even using music to do that. Dedicating specific times of the day for prayer, for worship, for silence, for listening. And all of those experiences accumulate in our hearts and lay the foundation for faith and for trust. And so the psalmist says here, the happy person, the blessed person, delights in the law of the Lord and meditates day and night. He mutters to himself the words of God like a cow chewing the cud. And then in verse 3, we see the growth of the righteous. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and all that he does, he prospers. Verse 3 gives us this poetic picture of what it looks like. The picture here is of a fruit-bearing tree. This tree has been planted. It isn't there by accident. And it's been planted with the intention that the tree would be placed near the source of water. And as a result of being planted there, this tree benefits from its environment. The psalmist tells us the tree benefits in a couple of ways. First of all, it yields its fruit in its season. Now this means that the tree isn't yielding the fruit all the time, but when it's time for it to yield fruit, the natural growing seasons in which the tree, the tree Uh, is to bear fruit come to fruition. And there's natural growing seasons in which the tree is not bearing fruit. But the tree doesn't care whether it's the season for bearing fruit or it's not the season for bearing fruit. It just stands or stays by the water source and keeps soaking up the nutrients fed to it from where it's planted. And eventually, the season for fruit bearing comes And it produces incredible fruit. And who is the fruit for? The fruit is for God 
and for others. Now contained within the fruit are the seeds needed to grow new trees so that the cycle of this life planted by a river of water can continue. The second thing he says is that its leaf does not wither. The picture presented here is that when droughts or dry seasons come, the tree doesn't wither because of the abundance of water soaked up through its roots. And as a result of that, the leaves are always fresh. So this happy, blessed person is blessed and prospers in all that they do. Why? Why is that? Well, it's because they have been intentionally planted near the source of life. They then soak that life up all year long. And it doesn't matter if it's a dry season or season for bearing fruit. The tree stays healthy. The picture here is so beautiful for us to ponder. We're invited as readers to take delight in what it might mean for us to intentionally be planted near the life source. We're invited to dream of what it might be like to soak up the words of God's Spirit through the Scriptures and to let it nurture and sustain us. We're invited to think about the happiness of not withering under the pressures of the dry seasons of life. We're invited to dream of the eternal fruit that may come, fruit that will be a delight to God and to others. And that fruit that comes from our life might have the possibility of sprouting new fruit-bearing trees as we share what we've soaked up. Isn't that a beautiful picture? The point of the psalmist is clear. The happy, blessed person enjoys the fruits of what they soak up. It's meant to complement the statement that he meditates on the Lord day and night. He's like that tree, soaking up the water, just soaking up that nutrient that he might bear fruit. Now in the final part of the psalm, the psalmist turns in contrast from the happy, blessed person to the wicked person. He says, verses 4 through 6, the wicked are not so, but they're like the chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. We're given a word picture for the wicked as well. They're like the chaff that the wind drives away. The chaff of grains is the unusable hull or husk that surrounds the grain. And when the grain was harvested in ancient times, the the grain was laid out on the ground and uh, in the sun and it was dried. As the kernels dried, they, they would sort of shrink and the husk would separate from the kernel, would sort of pull away, although it wasn't completely detached. So to separate the husk from the, the grains uh, or the chaff from the grains, the people in the Middle East would put all the grains in a big basket and and then sift it around and the grains would kind of grind up against each other and it would brush off that husk, the chaff, the the hole around the grains and they're kind of light and paper-like. And then they would take that basket and they would just 
throw it up into the air and the heavy, dense grains would fall back down into the basket and the wind that was coming by would grab the paper-like hull, the husk, the chaff, and it would blow it away. And that was how they would harvest grain. Now sometimes the chaff would be collected for the purpose of starting fires because it was so dry and so flammable. This picture... Two, just like the fruitful tree, is meant to leave an impression. It is such a stark contrast from the fruitful tree. We're meant to see the chaff as the wasted life. Wasted because it does no eternal good. Why? Because as the psalmist goes on to say, one day they will face the king of kings, the judge of all the earth. And all that they did in life will be gone. And they will get what they truly wanted in the first place, an existence away from the reign and the rule of God. They do not get to enjoy the eternal existence in the congregation of the fruit-bearing righteous. The wicked perish. In the final line of the psalm, the reader is reminded to meditate on eternity. The psalmist simply says, For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. This wisdom psalm invites us to think of worship not just as a momentary song that we sing, but but as a way of living under the reign and rule of God. It tells us there is a way of living that leads to an eternally beneficial life. This life is lived in covenant relationship with God. But this kind of life is delightful. It is fruitful. It is a, it is a flourishing life. It is a way of living marked by abiding in the life-giving word and presence of God. It is a life enjoyed, not wasted. It is a life that goes on and on and on in the presence of God forever. Amen? This time I'd like to invite the band up. For those of you who will be participating in communion, I want us to think about the kind of life that we share because of our covenant relationship with God. As we take communion together, we are going to celebrate our lives in God. We've come to know him through his son who set the terms of our relationship with him. A relationship based on trust in what he has done and is yet to do. What he intends to do in us and through us and for us because of his son. So if you peel back that top layer and pull out our wafer I'd love to lead you in prayer as we consider, as we meditate upon the body of Jesus. We know, God, from your word that in order to be in covenant relationship with you, a body had to be offered. In order to be the friends and family of God, someone had to stand in our gap take 
the punishment for our sins. And Father, you sent Jesus to be our rescuer. His body absorbing your judgment for our sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. What an amazing transfer. Lord, we thank you that we are not in relationship with you on the basis of a covenant of our performance, but on the basis of what Jesus has done for us on our behalf. We thank you that our forgiveness is guaranteed, that even this morning as we come to you, into your presence, we can come boldly and without fear because you have paid it all and we're forgiven. So Lord, we thank you for your body broken for us. In Jesus' name, you can take a knee. And Father, we thank you for your blood. The Old Testament tells us that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. This wine here represents what you did for us and how you took the shed blood of your own body, your own human body, and you used it to purify and to make us clean. You became the great high priest. Lord, we thank you that right now we are forgiven because of that shed blood. That we are protected like the, the blood that was posted over the doorposts in Egypt. We are protected by the blood that was shed. We also know, God, that the, the means of a covenant, no covenant was ever established without blood. The, the means of the relationship that we have with you is based upon the blood of Jesus. And God, we thank you that we are guaranteed to be adopted into your family, that we are guaranteed to be accepted and received by you because we put our faith in Jesus. Because of the terms of that covenant, by faith alone, we get to enjoy all the benefits of that covenant. Life in you, in the Spirit, and life eternal forever and ever. Lord, we thank you You said on the day that you were to be betrayed that you would not drink of this cup again until you drank it in the kingdom. And Lord, how we long, how we like the psalmist long for that day. We are living already in that hope, even though it is not yet. And we are longing, God, that your will would be done here on earth, even as it is being done in heaven. We long to drink this cup with you and we look forward to that day in the resurrection. In Jesus' name, you can take a drink. Let's worship together.